Welcome to Sad Taint, where one of your overly sentimental hosts will spend most of the time trying not to just right uh, out the gate break there. out in tears. Oh God! Just <laughs> oh man! Just... <laughs> Don't so. worry, everybody. It's a it's always an option that either of us could do that, and That's if fair. one of us does, <laughs> you know the other's not far behind. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, that's a good point. We're all about that's disclaimers, like call, huh? What? That's what I like to call austerity measures. Mmm, austerity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More like uh, dying because you can't afford food. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <gasps> Woo! Yeah, buddy. <laughs> yep, that's it. This just in, we all still live in hell. But not the fun Mm. sort of hell that was ever promised by any sort of, you know, religion or poet or some bullshit like that. No, just the hell of the real world as controlled by greedy capitalist bastards. Yep. And our our hearts go out to anybody who still works for a company like GoDaddy or the Tyson Food Corporation. (laughs) Or basically yep. just anybody who works for anyone doing anything where you have a boss who, <laughs> you know, um, won't be fired for betting on whether or not you die. Mm. You know, hey, there's always the um, there's always the possibility that the person who's betting on that uh, owns the place. Yeah. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's part of why they won't get fired. No, but it's, it's beyond that because, you know, at least uh, I don't even know. Yeah, not really, not really a whole lot of uh, redeeming possible circumstances for that one. There, kind of backed ourselves into a cul-de-sac of misery. Yep, yep. Yeah, what are we? We're two and a half minutes into the episode, and oh my god! <laughs> yes, sir. That's it. Uh, there is no um, god. If... <laughs> there is no god. There is no God, and I don't care, because it wouldn't make a difference if there was. <laughs> oh, my fuck. It actually would be worse if there was. Oh, it'd be so much worse. <laughs> oh, Imagine Christ. an immortal, omniscient, omnipresent being who could do anything and just doesn't. Yeah. Or this is what they're choosing to do. Yes. Which, of course, means that there are infinite realities full of infinite possibilities being explored, and Mm -hmm. we just drew the short fucking straw, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it seems that's that's how it's going here. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so uh, neither of us are drinking wine today. Nope. Uh, I'm drinking tea. I'm about to make tea. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, given that it's, uh, you know, early in the day, and also... uh, it's probably not what I need right now. Tom, but nice comforting warm tea is is pretty good. Yeah. Um. There's no way you'd have access to what you need right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know you're acting as though that might be something along the lines of tea, and <laughs> um, in reality, you like the rest of us need you know uh, comparatively simple things, things that many countries in this world have figured out, like socialized medicine or um, oh, uh, some form of a welfare state that actually mm-hmm. works or, uh, a single shred of human dignity. 
But in the meantime, I think the closest any of us are going to get are, uh, you know, alcoholism and uh, misery. So, um, yeah. And uh, deciding that about... you need those things instead of mm-hmm. trying to achieve anything else, basically the only option we have. Mm-hmm. You're forgetting uh, BuzzFeed. You also have BuzzFeed. Well, if that didn't just cure my <laughs> complete existential malaise, I don't know what will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Take a lesson, dear yeah. listener. If you're not thankful for BuzzFeed, you're an ingrateful <laughs> son of a bitch who doesn't even yep. deserve the $600 stimulus check that is apparently actually going to show up here at some point. Yeah. Yep. Amen. Mm. Yeah. Um, BuzzFeed. Yeah. What is that, honey? What is that? Uh, uh, a like CIA a... front? <laughs> it could be. Yep. If you know well, anything, uh... write in. At yep. uh at gmail.com or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember our email. Uh, Corktaint, uh, dot contact. Oh, yeah. At gmail.com. Is that with yeah. a K? No, no, it's straightforward. No, but yeah. seriously, please, uh, if you know something about BuzzFeed or any of those dog shit media sites being CIA fronts, we'd love to hear about it so that we yeah, can think about great. other things we can't do anything about, but... Uh, <laughs> can use as evidence for the fact that we live in, again, something worse than hell. Mm. <laughs> What's really funny is neither of us have even watched the new Wonder Woman movie, and we feel this <laughs> way. Man, I would love that. That would be great. <laughs> I listened to the, uh, in case you're wondering, um, as the member of this podcast who takes it upon themselves to listen to other podcasts, whether or not they mm-hmm. will actually make us better at doing this. Um, mm-hmm. I listened to the Chapo episode about it. Yeah. And uh, it's very funny to, like, listen to them try and talk about it. And, of course, they do some kind of over-the-top stuff that I was like, oh, I can see how this is, like, probably a little bit much as a as a, you know, attitude mm-hmm. to take and then i watched the trailer for it again mm-hmm. and just immediately was like no nah, no they're probably at a minimum correct about everything they're saying um yeah and i just don't want to go find out yeah 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 what we um what we need to do soon what we were planning on doing is uh doing this is now i'm talking to the listener which is something that i hate to do because i feel like it's it just seems artificial not that i hate talking to anybody who listens to this show but you know, anyway, um, is we, we got to do one of the, now I'm talking to you again. We got to do one of those, um, like a, not a reaction, some sort of reaction response where we're watching like Psalm or sideways or whatever in, um, in real time. But I feel like the Psalm movies would be, uh, would be, would be funnier because sideways is just like, whatever, it's a fucking, it's a fiction movie, but Psalm, the, the other documentaries or whatever are, um, more pertinent i think and also like our stupid bullshit commentary will actually like mean more yeah oh yeah I'd, but i'd absolutely describe those documentaries as pert hmm yeah pretty good the thing is i hate myself thinking oh yeah that works <laughs> um i love that like podcasts and doing podcasts i think this is true for a lot of people um Doing podcasts, listening to podcasts, or just (laughs) basically any combination of the two Mm -hmm. is like um, attempting to replace therapy or um, supplement therapy Mm -hmm. with some indication that um, 
you know, other people are out there and you can mm-hmm. have access to them or uh, their information or or their uh, attention. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, somehow wanting that so desperately or searching for it makes it feel less r- true, even though it is that there are people out there that you can have contact with and communicate with mm-hmm. and, you know, be friends with and all that stuff. It doesn't feel like they're is any of that these days feels like the only thing out there is mitch mcconnell smiling like you know i don't even know i he's like he's uglier than death (laughs) yeah yeah he looks like a he looks like the flesh of a toad being attempted to be stretched over a human skull minus the (laughs) mandible (laughs) Or also just the most boring version of Satan. Like, the the Satan that the most boring hell that we live in deserves. Yeah, no, yeah. He, like, I mean, he is... Like, he makes any presentation of the devil basically ever um, somewhat uh, uh, obsolete. Because mm-hmm. the thing about the devil is the devil hustles. Like the devil's a the devil's a real yeah. wheeler dealer. He's a real creative mm-hmm. guy. Mitch McConnell's creativity and efficacy all boil down to neutering the institution within which he functions. Like yeah, his ultimate genius and creativity are just finding ways to stop the government from doing anything and he's just much more willing to fucking drive the wheels off the bus in uh <laughs> in doing that than anyone before him he, he he's looked at the whole system and gone tell you what i can just um well i can just open the choke way up flood this thing's engine and let it just roll off the cliff it's gonna be fine mm-hmm. and you know what's crazy about it what really baffles me is like why you would do that i just don't understand it yeah, not either. Like, how little contact do you have to have your entire life with reality to not to not identify how much suffering you cause when you're in a position like his? I mean, Nancy Pelosi makes more sense to me because she is so clearly an out-of-touch, just, um, huckster who was born into and bred in the, like ideology of being a manager whose uh, every decision is correct simply by indication of the fact that she never feels any repercussions for their failures uh, personally. Like, she can make as many mm-hmm. bad choices as she wants, and she's just always insulated by money and perception, so long as she does the occasional, you know, like, awkward clap or um, eye roll at certain people who are, you know, more politically galvanizing than her. But, yeah, man. Yep. All right, we should bring this... Uh, some, we at least got to figure out what we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing that's great about this episode, everybody. We, we, we're we going at this um, basically as bereft of, um, you know, uh, optimism as we ever tried to, and mm-hmm. uh, also without even a topic so yeah you know uh so we're gonna be talking about um cocktails today specifically those um it's a good idea those uh invented by russians Mm -hmm. um and that involve uh the whole bottle 
and mm-hmm. making sure to drink it as quickly as possible so you can fill it up instead with gasoline. Ooh, okay. I was, what do you... I was just making a shitty Molotov cocktail joke, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that, but uh, I see you didn't. No. We, we could actually talk about cocktails today if you want. We could. I feel like that'd be a better episode to do some other time when we can actually drink a cocktail while talking about cocktails. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, we're drinking. I mean, we could talk about like alcoholism in the wine industry. Ooh, that's a little too depressing. <laughs> I mean, we're too... already down here. Well, you know, I was thinking with tea, the tea thing had me on the mind, had me thinking we could talk about, um, we could talk about, uh, like basically beverage colonialism, but I, I realized that that's a weird, um, yeah, I would want to do a bunch of research about like specific topics into that. Yeah, I would mostly be working with um, the sort of off the cuff stuff stuff I know about. Mm-hmm. Well, generally, so it, that, let's do an episode about that someday. Uh, it's something that yeah. I'm just bringing up now as as a thing that I am fascinated by because I consider you know like beverages like tea like it's just wild mm-hmm. to me that things like tea and coffee. Um, are important enough to have um, been the goal uh, towards which certain empires strode uh, across cobblestones, which were the you know complete immiseration and death of millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. Like just the, like the wild inhumanity of both of those industries um, histories is devastating. But you know, Starbucks, baby. Get her done. Get her done. So yeah, that one's also pretty depressing. Uh, you know, why don't yeah. we talk about alcoholism in the wine industry? Because <laughs> 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 well, with the colonialism in... in um, Or basically, like, I don't even know if it's colonialism, but just, like, the relationship of empire to, like, specialty beverages. Um, mm-hmm. uh, coffee, tea, and wine. Like, uh, all three have fascinating political structures involved in them. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's it's like if you read too deeply into the history of coffee, it's like, oh, yeah, basically all coffee production is, you know, b- came out of slavery at some point in yeah. history. And then uh, tea, like, that's, it's a little known or a little, like, appreciated, I think, at this point in time, um, point that when the American Revolution happened, mm-hmm. the loss of the American colonies was certainly not insignificant or, you know, not unimportant to Britain, but it was so much less um like the thing one of the main things about it that was uh risky was the possibility of it inspiring or creating um creating room for a similar sort of revolution somewhere like india or one of the other holdings of the british empire that was much more valuable to them economically in in like raw material terms Mm mm-hmm so like the southern United States were producing plenty of cotton and and I again this I don't I don't have enough research that I've done into this to like speak to it thoroughly yeah. but um we were not as important to Britain as India like I do know that and yeah yeah uh, people forget that <laughs> people are like ah oh, the American Revolution it was it was such a big deal we really handed the British their ass it's like well yeah but like they also like were maintaining the rest of an enormous empire at the same time (laughs) Mm -hmm. like yeah if they if they'd pulled resources out of india it would have been fascinating to see what happened there but they weren't going to do that because um well again tea is a big part of it Mm -hmm. 
in slavery, but you know, <coughs> and sla- <coughs> slaves. <coughs> we should God try and think it. of a fun topic, though. Yeah, let's let's think of something good. Um, uh, we should also at some point do an episode about prison wine. <laughs> yeah, that's good, man. Uh, uh, we're really thinking of the good ones today. No, my um, mind is in a bad place. <laughs> By which I mean my body. <laughs> my body is bad. <laughs> um, it's coughing around twenty minutes. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I think that we could talk about. I mean, we could talk about the. They're, they're like we have that list of topics. Like the, we want to talk about the Parker system and and why that's fucked up. And what they did to the industry, we could do that one. Unless yeah. we want to wait. To... Oh, I'm good with that one. Screw okay. it. Okay. All right. Cool. So, this episode is t- is about uh, how wine critics um, really fucked up the whole game here. Um, fucked it right and up. And this is something that I've talked to Steve about, and he's like, <clears throat> like now there are there are a lot more. He's like, there's a lot more good wine, meaning like. It used to be that you would go to the store and you'd buy a bottle of wine, and the likelihood that that wine was just like terrible is was much much higher than it is today. Mm-hmm. But the but now like the trade off is now like a lot of wines just kind of taste the same. Yeah. And where there used to be much more of a distinction between all these different regions, now there's you know, people talk about you know, negatively say, oh, this is like a new world style wine. <clears throat> well, they might not even say that explicitly. They might just say like, oh, this is a more fruit forward. Um, it sees a, it sees a lot of oak, you know, all, the, all those sorts of like a bit more extracted. They'll use those terms to sort of hint that it's, you know, not necessarily a traditional mm-hmm. wine um, and more geared towards a style that like American critics would like. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so much that like there was a window of time, certainly where I would describe um, the that scoring system and like um, the revolution it brought to the um sort of attention on wine and it's i don't i don't know if like it's more of a correlation than a causation thing because there were lots Mm -hmm. of other forces in the wine industry around this same time but sort Mm -hmm. of the probably like the mid 80s through the early 2000s um -hmm. will be seen as sort of a golden age of the worldwide wine industry in terms Mm -hmm. of prices um increase in quality and um increase in diversity of regions mm-hmm. and terroir that i'm just spitballing with that and you know history will prove me wrong or right and i won't be around to care mm-hmm. so you know that's great um, yeah if i'm right people will laud my laud my illustrious <laughs> accomplishments and if i'm wrong people will go who is he yeah sounds yeah. very he sounds very lame mm. he was friends with he was friends with that guy well, that guy was much more successful. Um, yeah, uh, you're that guy, by the way, buddy. One way or another, this podcast is gonna is gonna take off and become incredibly famous and and profitable. Um, mm-hmm. and, and gonna make a eighteen month mark mm-hmm. before we really start. Yeah. Uh, hey, if no. if we can do a podcast of this quality while we're both this fucking uh, despondent, <laughs> uh, we can do anything. Um, <sighs> I mean, I wouldn't say anything, but you know. I get what you're saying. Hey man, you're flying until you hit the ground. Don't let anyone tell you different. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's yep. <clears throat> but uh yeah, and I would say yeah, I would say um that was an incredibly dark statement. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. 
Um, no, no, I didn't even flinch. Yeah. Um, that's, no, I knew you no, didn't I th- flinch. That's not the part I. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, but no, I uh, think I think your your comment about you know it's sort of being a golden age. I think you could view it as that, or you could view the uh, the more optimistic perspective. I think, which would be more in line with this episode, is that from like the early beginning, like the early two thousands until maybe. Uh, like current day or maybe really until about like 2016 Mm -hmm. because i feel like the pendulum's starting to swing back a little bit the other direction yeah um was really like not dark age but like really things were getting out of control and producers who you know there were some places that stayed traditional of course but like meaning they made the wines how they always made the wines but especially um like going back to like the super tuscan episode or sangiovese producers or whatever they you know, would like, were literally just like destroying the old barrels that they were using, the big Slavonian, like gigantic barrels and switching to like, you know, s- smaller format French oak. Yeah. Because they want more of that barrel presence and they want it to be a more like understandable and popular style of wine. And they want to be able to charge more and they want to be more successful. Like, I get it. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's just sort of like not really, I don't, I don't know if anybody really expected it to get to the point that it is or the point that it got to. But, like, whatever, at any point in time you're making, like, you may or may not be making a decision based on what you think is best for you and your family or your business or whatever. And mm, it's not always directly, dick. like, straightforward. Yes, yes, especially that. Yeah. Uh, oh. It may not, as, like, <clears throat> be directly apparent as to what the long-term consequences might be. Yeah. But, um... Oh, almost, I th- yeah. Yeah. That, no, I, yeah. I think there are a lot of people who do like those styles of wines and we'll describe what those styles of wines are and i like them and you know like i like everything and you know everything has its like context that that works but um yeah and so i think people sort of strayed away from the traditional way that they were doing things to sort of meet the demand um and yeah you know because maybe sales are declining and they were like oh wow if we want to stay relevant and want to like stay in business we have to make some changes yeah and i i um yeah i think so and I wasn't trying to be uh, non-optimistic. I cause, like I think you you're right that there was like a particularly bad window of time. Um, but I think that what's so cool about like the window from say '85 to early 2000s for the mm-hmm. wine industry particularly, it's one of those because this is you know one of those little our perspectives about history are um, largely uh, moronic, um, mm-hmm. not ours particularly, but uh, just like ours culturally. Because mm-hmm. people lose track of like what was really going on or what the real nature of um, the emotional experience of people in a time was. So mm-hmm. like, you know, people would get very sort of like affronted if you said something along the lines of like, oh, no, yeah, politically and culturally things were so like things were so much better in 1965 than they are today not because like they were flat out but because we had things like an anti-war movement we had things like a real left Mm -hmm. we had things like um we had things like uh real solidarity between you know identity groups in this country because they didn't think of themselves Mm -hmm. primarily as identity groups they thought of themselves (laughs) in real material terms and Mm -hmm. that is not how we are trained by stories of the time to look at a period of time like 1965. We're taught a very specific set of things about that that are basically meant to culminate in, like, Woodstock and the Manson murders. Those are the two poles Mm -hmm. to, you know, to which um, the 60s uh, disseminated. 
And that's kind of how we're supposed to look at that. Not, you know, not taking into account things like the 1968 presidential election or um, the, you know, ongoing pressure around Vietnam or like how weird the 70s got because of all of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like sort of the ebbs and flows of influences and how they impact the things that occur over time. And one of the things that is so cool about like that window of time from the late 80s up to like the 2000s and even to, you know, the mid early 2000s, like prior to 2010 is in wine they resulted in there was they resulted in a lot of really cool projects getting started a lot of really really great work being done and a lot of really really beautiful wines being developed all over the world or sort of redeveloped like that was the you know mm-hmm. that was the period of um, burgundy basically getting resuscitated as because uh, mm-hmm. that's one of the other things that's like important to remember burgundy's history goes back to like the 1400s but their um current like price point and the the way that grand cru wines from burgundy are treated has a lot to do with the mm-hmm. fact that people like people started taking certain producers in burgundy seriously again certain producers started taking themselves seriously in burgundy again and then the prices started to go up after yeah. the wines actually got better again like there, there was mm-hmm. an increase in quality in those wines whether yeah. or not that's like you know persisted past the point of like um you know the 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 um, the, uh, oh, you know, the explosion in price or now that people feel like they can get, you know, money for whatever they do kind of thing, mm-hmm. who knows, but yeah. you know, projects like, um, like the heyday of projects like, uh, Dagano or, um, Domaine du Jacques in France are like, I wish I knew more about those wines and, and, um, you know, understood why they were so important to the people that they were, they were, uh, inspirational to because I mm-hmm. haven't personally tried those wines and you know um, but I know that they were significant to people who you know to, to winemakers who whose wines I have tried and whose wines are really really interesting and that was the window of time in which they were you know making their name or their name was really getting mm-hmm. like was really starting to sell stuff right and um, and I do think it's a correlation not a causation thing but that's also around the window of time when you know wine the modern wine magazine um, kind of situates itself and starts mm-hmm. to um, influence all of that. And then, yeah, like you were saying, I think I think that kind of preempted the the sort of dark age we've been in and are just coming out of with the vintages of wine. Well, and I don't even know. We'll we'll have to see. Uh, you know, because there are all kinds of other factors. But you know, we're. I would say the the end of that the end of that rosy era is. Um, you know, basically this moment where all of this advance in wine technology is now having to be used to try and solve insane problems like um, uh, smoke in you know major regions as a mm-hmm. condition of the season. Like it's gonna it's gonna happen. Maybe not every year, but the majority of years in Australia and and California now. Um, yeah. And before long, it'll probably happen the majority of years in Washington and Oregon. Um, like, what does that do to the whole industry? And meanwhile, all of these advances in technology are making it possible for huge vineyards to be planted in places like China and Korea, even Japan, where, you know, they're just, they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff that I don't know very much about. But, you know, there are some places where they can get two harvests off of a vineyard in a year and enough. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and enough technology exists that they can, you know, um, that they can grow grapes there at some level. Uh, of return mm-hmm. on it, but um, 
which wouldn't have been the case without all kinds of uh, mechanization and innovation mm-hmm. in how to deal with different um, in how to deal with different oh, pathogens or or problems or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, New Zealand's Sauvignon Blanc industry uh, is another good example. And another another you know type of wine that really you know nobody was drinking before. You, you know, nobody in the late eighties even mm-hmm. was drinking New Zealand. Sauvignon Blanc, but uh, but they they were by the early two thousands like that, and then and then yeah. and then by you know by now it's almost a it's it's a cliche and mm-hmm. oh how did that how did that all happen and a big part of how it happened is people being like all right well all wine can be described by a score out of one hundred points like that mentality mm-hmm. has seeped in and um, I would say that that, that like the, the the like sort of uh, what's the 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 and that mentality being firmly ensconced in all wine discussion, whether or not mm-hmm. people take it seriously or believe it to be true, they have to negotiate with it. I would mm-hmm. say carries along pretty. I, I would say that tracks pretty well with the that dark era, that dark age you're talking about from yeah the you know <clears throat> mid late two thousands to our current moment. Yeah. And I think another important uh, point is that... God, that was a long diatribe. Thanks for... That's all right. Don't worry, buddy. Um, I think another important point is that, you know, you talk to anybody who has been in the wine industry for, like, a long time, and they're like, oh, yeah, no, I remember, like, in the 80s, like, early 80s, like, oh, you could get, like, Chateau Margaux for, like, I don't know, like, 40 bucks. Yeah. Now, like, like all, like, those, those, all sort those wines that are just out of the, out of the grasp of so many people yeah. were not really back then. And... And I'm sure that has a lot to do with scores. It probably also has a, a lot to do with like the um, increasing like uh, disparity in like in income, yeah, uh, throughout the country and accumulation of wealth in the top. But um, I think certainly with a like, is there were like wine critics? Like I think uh, Michael Broadbent. I think he was like a mm-hmm. was like the, yeah, he died recently, like in March or something. But yeah. he was like the world's foremost expert on on aged wines, and he was a critic from like since like forever. And, but there wasn't like, you know, as far as I know, a lot of mainstream critics that, you know, you know, uh, that would significantly shape individuals like, like purchasing, you know. And um, I think also that, uh, I don't know, it's tough because, so, all right, so basically like the Parker scale is like, I forget yeah. the, the breakdown, well, but it's like. you also can't forget the internet in this whole conversation because like th- yeah. that that also lines up with these timelines we're talking about where. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you could buy wine magazines and learn about scoring that way, but now you can also just go onto Seller Tracker and see a sort of like or Vivino or wherever, and see sort of a de- democratically decided score out of one hundred. Which, mm-hmm. you know, which again, we, so where you were about to go, like that, that we got, we got to talk about the, we got to talk about the boy Bobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> Robert Parker's scale. So you know, like everything's out of hundred points. I'm looking on their site right now. So, 50 to 59 points is a wine deemed to be unacceptable. So, that's, like, the lowest. So, and I guess, in theory, you can't get, like, a 49 on a wine. It just doesn't exist. Um, what makes unacceptable is, that's unclear. So, 60 to 69 is below average, a wine containing noticeable deficiencies such as excessive acidity and or tannin, absence of flavor, or possibly dirty aromas or flavors. 70 to 79 is an average wine with little distinction, except that it is soundly made, in essence, a straightforward, innocuous wine. Yellow 80 tail. to 89... Yeah, uh, well, not even because what is what is to say what is soundly made? 
Well, that's a know. good point. Um, I and b- below yeah. average wine. So okay, a wine that is okay. So what is an average wine? Noticeable deficiencies: excessive acidity and/or tannin. So wine is too tannic. It's like what well, we both had, like young Nebbiolos, like those are or, or like like Maduran or any of those like Tanats. Mm-hmm. They can be so tannic. Yeah. It's like, or what does excessive tannin mean? Yet I, I have, I've never even seen a like a sixty-two. You know, oh, like well, a, that yeah, score. Yeah, no one's gonna put those scores. It doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've never even heard of like, <clears throat> but you can look on like wine enthusiast site and you can sort by like lowest score and on that site it'll like i mean i don't know if it's like you submit your wine for score and then if you get below an 80 if they're like hey do you want us like you have the option of us not not publishing this on the site oh i don't know if it works like that it absolutely does um that Mm. yeah no that uh anywhere you submit your wines to you you get a score and then they ask if you want to pay to have their to have it published you Okay, anytime you submit to wine enthusiast wine spectator wine and spirits decanter um they they you pay a fee to submit the wine and then if you get a score that you want to have published and a review and and have it reviewed and have the review written for it i believe the reviews aren't written until you pay to have it published hmm. uh because it's always the score and then there's a review below it um yeah and you'll notice if you look through Wine Spectator or Wine, Wine and Spirits or um, Wine Enthusiast, any of those, different regions, di- there are different... So, every it's confusing because now everyone uses the Parker system, but um, mm-hmm. the way most magazines work, and there are exceptions to this in different models, but uh, the wines get... You, you send your wines in and they get scored and then... If you want to publish that score, uh, you know, you'll get a write-up, a review of the wine. All of those reviews for a given region, uh, Mm because most of those magazines are subdivided by region, um, will be reviewed by one or two people, because there will be specific people assigned to uh, each region. Sometimes, all of those scores will be from that one person. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's really important to keep that, to keep it in mind how subjective all of that is in any of those contexts, which is important not just in terms of what the score is and what the review is and all of that, but that that is the case of the scoring system itself because that was invented by one of those people, a a guy who reviewed wines and, you know, told you what he thought about them. We've talked about this before as well, but Jancis Robinson doesn't use the Parker system. She uses her own system, which is out of 20 points. Mm -hmm. So, you know... Any wine reviewed yeah. by Jancis Robinson on the Parker scale looks like absolute dog shit. They're impossibly shit. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna finish saying. Oh those yeah, sorry, points sorry. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So yeah, 80 to 89 is barely above average to very good. So assuming 80 would be barely above average, and 89 would be very good. Wine displaying uh, various degrees of finesse and flavor, as well as character with no noticeable flaws. 90 to 95 is out. Outstanding wine of exceptional complexity and character. In short, these are terrific wines. 96 to 100 and Extraordinary wine of profound and complex character displaying all the attributes expected of a classic wine of its variety. Wines of this caliber are worth a special effort to find, purchase, and consume. Mm-hmm. So this kind of comes back to what you were talking about a while ago, saying, um, so all the attributes expected, expected of a classic wine of its variety. So immediately that's saying, like, okay, well, this is just using 
we're basing whatever if you make this like cab stove from the, i don't know uh virginia or something it's like all right well we're, we're we're comparing this to the greatest wines made out of this grape which i guess are also great compared to other great wine like th- there is some standard out there that they hold this thing to that is in of itself subjective because you're not going to like analyze this but as you're saying let's say like <clears throat> washington cab there might be like one or yeah you're right, you're right one or two people for wine enthusiast or one or two people for the, the wine advocate or something that just do that so it's like i don't know like like anybody has their own personal preferences and there are some flavors that somebody might not like so let's say you hate buttery chardonnay but you're reviewing this wine that's buttery like okay yeah you like i'm going to be subjective about this this wine is you know maybe not to my taste but i can tell it's a 98 point wine or something but like yeah but part of part of you thinking that it's a hundred point wine is you on some level having this like profound emotional connection with this thing that is so mesmerizing and you're like this is this is perfect yeah but if it has a like a pretty distinct note of something that you don't like i have a hard time believing you would still give that a hundred points if it had some characteristic thing like if you don't like dill and you're like reviewing uh or no, that'd be for Rioja. That would be like really terrible. But you know what I mean. Like yeah. if 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 you're reviewing, uh, if you like dill, and I don't know, you're reviewing wines from the Loire, and you get some like Sauvignon Blanc that has dill in it, you're like, oh god, I I didn't want that in here. And then who's to say like, oh well, that's not characteristic of Sauvignon Blanc, so it's that's not going to be the '96 or whatever the fuck. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. So that's that's the scale, and I'm gonna find the the um the the breakdown of what they assign, like how many points they assign to each thing. Oh yeah. Well, um, but, uh, in the, so while you're doing mm-hmm. that, a thing worth keeping in mind with what we were saying earlier, um, the way wines reviewed are not like, it's more, it's more like, um, wines are reviewed more like, uh, essays are graded than like tests are graded. It's not like there's mm-hmm. an answer key where there are correct answers. Uh, it's a professor reading or, you know, reading the essays, particularly ones with out assigned topics. So you just, you know, are told to write, you know, however many page of essay about a given thing. And like you were saying, Tom, um, some essays get better grades just because you write about something the professor wants to read about or has an opinion about. Mm-hmm. Like if you write about something that you find really interesting no matter how brilliantly you write about it or how insightful it might be if the person grading it uh didn't have those didn't have those thoughts before they read your essay or isn't interested in that element of the text like say you read um say you read moby dick and you're interested in all of the homoerotic imagery in that book Mm -hmm. but your professor is um shall we say not um open to that you're probably not going to get a very good grade despite the fact that you absolutely should if you do a competent job writing a compelling essay about a topic that very much is part of moby dick like that's the Mm -hmm. kind of thing that you know it's the kind of thing that is completely subjective but um not in the way that it shows up on your transcript so yeah like it's it's important to keep in mind that 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 is the way in which these things are done not like it's not like a Scantron thing where you, where your professor has to go put it through a machine that um, was programmed by somebody else to give them the correct results. Like they're not, these wine magazines are not referring to some higher uh, ultimate authority, some, you know, 
they don't have they don't have a line straight to Dionysus to ask him what he thinks about these wines, like mm-hmm. which would be you know I guess that would be the something he would do in the in the good. ancient Roman world. It's like declare which wines are good and not which ones aren't. Yeah, all right, I found. Or Dionysus was it was Dionysus, Dionysus was the Roman version, right? Is Bacchus Greek? Yeah, uh, Bacchus. Was Greek. I think Bacchus was Greek. Yeah. yeah cool. Yeah. Um, all right, so I found it. So basically, yeah, you get fifty points just for starting out. Um, and this is for the this is for Parker system. So this will vary based on critics. So James Suckling is different, um, because as he said, you know, in his master class and per my sarcastic post, per my sarcastic comment on there, it wasn't even really sarcastic. It was just like inquisitive. Let's say um, you're that kid so in class, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Wait, but why doesn't God just destroy the devil? Shut up. <laughs> color, five points for color and appearance. Uh, how does the wine look? Optics. Okay. Fifteen points for does aroma it have a bouquet. Frog in what it? the nose? What the, what the nose perceives? Complexity. Flavor and finish. Uh, aroma bouquet is fifteen points. Twenty points for flavor and finish. What you taste and how long the finish lasts. Um, and ten points on overall quality, a subjective factor on the integrated experience, whatever that means. So, the only thing that really like is like legitimate in that i think is the finish because you can actually time how long the finish lasts yeah and that's that's really the only thing like what okay so flavor and what you taste are you saying like the number of distinct things that you can taste you know like oh this tastes like a cherry but this tastes like a really good cherry like all right so are you like scoring each flavor element and the number of like you know it's it's arbitrary but i get like if you're gonna try to do it um what the nose perceives in complexity again like there there are like certain people like i have a really hard time identifying um uh rotundone that like compound responsible for the black pepper aroma mm-hmm. so when i would do like blind tastings for um syrah for studying for stuff i would it, like syrahs would be a little bit hard because some people they like when they're sensitive to it, it just jumps out and they're like oh okay it's a syrah i'm getting like a nose full of pepper and i'm like oh i gotta figure out like it doesn't just hit me you know yeah um so I probably wouldn't be the best person to judge Syrahs or something. Like, I don't know if people separate, like, at those at those things, if someone's like, oh, yeah, no, I am way too sensitive to, like, like pyrazines. So, like, green bell pepper, fresh-cut grass, that kind of stuff. I'm way too sensitive to that, so I probably shouldn't do, like, uh, you know, like Sauvignon Blanc or something. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I don't know if that's how it works. If they set people, set people, uh, assign people to different places depending on their preferences or what they, you know, like I don't know. Well, but, um, you're being much more uh, self-aware than many people in the wine industry are, Tom. I, I don't think that people, I don't think people get moved around based on stuff like that for for those yeah. jobs. Like I think it's, that's probably the case. Otherwise, everybody's like, everybody would go to Chablis. Yeah, all the time. Which, um, you know, isn't the worst. Uh, yeah. Or champagne. Yeah. yeah. That'd be terrible. It's like being the food critic at a newspaper. It's the job everyone wants. Yeah. Not that being any sort of critic at a newspaper is still a job, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but... So, uh, and then, you know, James Suckling has his own way of doing it. But it's actually funny, on the the Robert Parker, the Wine Advocate site, they they actually kind of shit on Jancis Robinson here a bit. So they say... Robert Parker created our original rating system with the first issue of The Wine Advocate, and it remains unchanged to this day. It employs a 100-point quality scale in which wines are given a rating of 50 to 100 points, as Robert Parker believes that the various 20-point rating systems do not provide enough flexibility and often result in compressed and inflating wines, inflated wine ratings. And it's like, oh, okay, so you just... You say compressed and inflated? Yeah. Uh, well, 
those are keep those, in mind those are, like those Francis are, Robinson hardly ever gives like 20s or 19 and a half because she'll do like half points also yeah she'll hardly give like 19s even yeah and saying uh, it results in compressed and inflated wine like it it can't be both at the same time <laughs> I know yeah and and also like I don't know what if chances if her rating scale is like oh yeah everything automatically gets a 10 but if it's genuinely 0 to 20 then that's and she does half point intervals that's 40 up 40 point scale as opposed to Robert Parker's 50 and like yeah is that really that much of a fucking difference it's not cuz that's the thing is yeah. he's not admitting to the fact that he only has a 50 point scale he just wanted yeah. it to be out of 100 yeah yeah and he just and that's one of the other reasons that I bring up the fucking grading like it's a school project thing because it's you want it to be like he's saying you start off with 50 points as a fucking participation award for hey you made a wine yeah like that's it's patronizing in it in its mm-hmm. in its structure but whatever mm-hmm. not bitter yeah okay so chances basically goes from 12 to 20 yeah 12 is faulty or unbalanced 13 borderline faulty or unbalanced 14 deadly dull mm. 15's average perfectly nice drink 16 dis- disqu- distinguished 17 superior 8 a cut above superior nine a humdinger and 20 truly exceptional like what the fuck is that this is like out of a fucking raw doll book this is like a real humdinger roll doll was a not a lot you know not enough talk about this but that guy uh just real puss hound (laughs) the old cooch pooch real yeah just i couldn't get enough yeah um no, there's some very funny articles about how he and a group of other um, Brits were um, sent to America to try mm-hmm. and um, get America involved in World War II on behalf of Britain mm-hmm. or, you know, to help Britain out. And many of them, um, rolled all included, went about that by sleeping with diplomats' wives. <laughs> mm, nice. They were just all like fucking uh all of these all of these wives of important american officials trying to get them to influence their husbands into um getting america involved in the war mm-hmm. so uh pearl harbor was the real 9-11 of all these brits getting their <laughs> willies waxed by american women God damn oh man oh there's this really interesting article i'm just finding about um there's an mw on um richard hemming an article we wrote on gentis robinson site um so I'll just read the first, like, two paragraphs of this. Last month I tasted around 50 Condrews from 2017 Vintage. I scored one particular wine at a measly 14.5, one of the lowest possible scores. Another one at 17.5, only one out of four scores that high for the appellation across the Vintage. The trouble was that it was the same wine. The first time it was the 13th wine tasted blind in a lineup of 47 Condrews organized by promotional uh, body Interone. second time I was at a relaxed dinner following the following evening with the winemaker himself sitting outside of our table. Uh, so it's like, oh wow, yeah. So within forty-eight hours, <laughs> yeah. he went from like this is horrible to like this is incredible. Oh, I would have loved it if it was the other way around. He went from this is incredible <laughs> to sitting next to the winemaker and was just like, this yeah, is yeah. miserable. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the other things yeah. about a lot of these scoring systems. The the wines will get scored being batch tasted in huge groups. Yeah. Um, and they'll be tasted sometimes once, sometimes they'll be tasted multiple times by people over several days, but that's usually by the person who's writing the uh, review, and m- that might not influence the score. Um, mm-hmm. And 
that's not even taking into account the fact that people have off days with their palate. Like there are days where people just yeah. aren't tasting things well um, in like two week intervals because that's about the amount of time it takes for your uh, taste buds to f- slough off and replenish. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and your um, I mean your sinuses are also in. I think it's about two weeks. It might be three. Um, and then your sinuses are incredibly complicated. And I don't think that there's like quite the same sort of like scale of renewal in terms of how well your sinuses work. Mm-hmm. But um, something I do know is that like your uh, which nostril you actually breathe through switches over the day. Um, mm-hmm. And like it'll be on one side early in the morning and sort of by, you know, about noon, you'll switch to the other one and then switch back, I think, at some point. And that like that impacts which like things you pick up on which surfaces in your sinus membranes you um contact with stuff like there mm-hmm. your your perception of things is incredibly um malleable very plastic and very subtle like your 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 experience with something is not going to be static um as right. that fellow's um not to, and that's to say nothing of how the wine might change over two days. Like, does does he say whether or not it was the same bottle or was it different bottles? No, it was different bottles. One was at a tasting and then one was at dinner. Well, and that's the other thing is like one of those bottles might have genuinely been flawed in like a just flawed. It might have been flawed in like mm-hmm. a pretty genuine way that wasn't necessarily like Pediococcus, Britannomyces, uh, volatile acidity, anything like that noticeable, but just like some sort of like low hum combination of several things. And then the other bottle might have actually just been completely sound. Like, that, there are so many factors to all of that that are just insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, and going back to the thing about the wine tasting, is it's like, even if you taste, taste like, four wines back-to-back, if you have four, like, really big, high-alcohol, very tannic wines made out of Pinot Noir, and then you have a really pretty, delicate Pinot Noir at the end, it's going to kind of taste and smell like nothing. Yeah, yeah. And but if you have it first, you're like, oh, this is so pretty and delicate. So whenever you do tasting, you should organize it into lightest to like fullest. Yeah, and richest. Um, oh yeah, but I guess we didn't. We never really talked about it. What? So the wines that tend to get higher scores from critics are um, usually, um, and probably for that reason, because when they're tasting all of these things back to back, the ones that are more aromatic, higher alcohol, bigger, make a, like a larger impression, more tannic. Um, more bodacious higher yeah yeah um can tend to have you know things that sort of add like more punch to the wine like more oak and um just riper fruit and all those sorts of things uh can make someone say like oh wow this is really fun especially if like you're sort of starting to get a little bit of palate fatigue you're on your 45th wine of the of the day you're tasting and one is just this gigantic really sort of like bombastic ridiculous wine it's a real like, oh, this is incredible a real humdinger. It's got a robotic frog on the front of it. This is great. Hundred points. And um, <laughs> not casting any aspersions there. No, I'm just saying it could have been a robotic frog. It could have been a bunch of horses. It could have been just a bunch of writing over and over. Yeah. Um. It could have been all sorts of stuff. But but it was yeah. No, but so it was probably a frog with a mechanical leg. Probably a frog. Probably. Yeah. I don't know what are the label. Those are the only three labels there wines that I know. Yeah, I can't think of the other. Wait, did you say the one about the flying pig? No, I didn't say that one. Uh, there's one with a flying yeah. pig. And there's one that yeah. is just papyrus font. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's 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 yeah, great so. because it's li- like um, well, one of the funnier SNL um, bits 
that I think has been done in several years is um, like a fake sort of like psychological thriller trailer with Ryan Gosling in it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that he's haunted by and he's trying to figure out is why no one called Avatar out for just using the papyrus font for all of their advertising. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's just papyrus. Did nobody notice this? Everyone's like, let it go, man. It doesn't matter. Let it go. It's like, I can't let it go. Yeah. It's supposed to be like, you know, yeah, it's quite David funny. Fincher type thing. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, like the, I, you know, I really don't trust my own palate after seven wines. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's tough. I, I mean, even if you're, like, yeah. you're, you're spitting them out and it's hard to, you know, they can, you can have whatever, a bunch of crackers and drink some water and shit and it can help and have some cheese like neutral kind of cheese just to you know have fat coat your palate and try to take some of the tannins away and give you a bit of a break but i mean it's the kind of thing that you can definitely like train to get better at but like regardless i don't care how good anybody is it's like you're gonna get exhausted at some point no like i i i and i i'm doing my doing my stutter trying to think of what to say um mm-hmm. i do think I have a relatively well-trained palate and I mm-hmm. have quite a bit of practice with that and quite a bit of practice tasting wines, the differences between which are quite subtle. And mm-hmm. yeah, after seven, I keep in mind that I'm losing, I, I'm losing some amount of perception. After 12, I really try to focus in and be more thoughtful and work really, mm-hmm. really hard. But then after 20, like it's just, yeah, I'm, I like, I'm not, I'm not, unless I'm not able to look for less than obvious things after 20 yeah, wines. Yeah, yeah. I certainly wouldn't yeah, want to be scoring wines out of a hundred points after 20 wines. Mm-hmm. Like, but you know, the, the, yeah, there are so many structural issues to that, to, to, to that system and to that mentality about stuff. And it's mm-hmm. on the, the, the flip side is it can be good in that good scores help people sell wine and interesting producers will get good scores because they will make good wine that will get good scores like it 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 can work and be helpful but Mm -hmm. it's 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 just important to keep it in mind for what it is which is an advertising tool for the magazine not for the wine yeah like the, the parker system or any scoring system for wine is is a method of advertising their their ability to score wines and sell them to you it is not advertising for the wine itself yeah do you want to do you want to cut it off now and then in the patreon we can talk about some of the good things about the parker scoring system yeah i guess um uh but uh hey patreon.com slash cork please give us oh, give yeah, us enough yeah. money to go out and prove that those wines we talk about are good but not worth um going bankrupt for yeah uh, patreon.com slash cork taint sign up for or, um, follow us on instagram and twitter follow us on instagram at yes at cork taint two k's yes k-o-r-k and, uh, taint yep is it the same thing for the twitter yeah i believe so nice and yep uh, supporting us on patreon is uh, means a lot and uh does more than just give us money to buy wine it also makes us feel like uh what we're actually doing means something to people which is uh very heartwarming and uh we i don't know we do it for you folks so we do it for that's it 
We're not doing this for us. No siri Bob. Nope. No. Mm-mm. No way. We've never All done right. a thing for ourselves in our lives. Nope. Mm-mm. Never. Nope. Not once. Mm-mm. Never, ever. Zero. No. Nope. Uh, we made it to two hours. All right, let's cut this thing off. <laughs> we did. Bingo. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya.